Hey, what's up, guys? We are so excited that you're joining us today. If you're a part of our Grace community, whether in person or online, we would love to connect with you on social media at the Grace AG on all social outlets. But the best way to connect is to join our online community at live.graceassembly.org. Here, you can connect and engage with other Grace members around the world. So, we hope today's message encourages and challenges you. Let's jump right in. Thank you. Appreciate you. And thank you to this awesome worship band. Aren't they great? Can we give them a hand? I've spoken at a lot of churches in 16 years, and you ought to hear some of the music I've had to put up with. But here, you guys are first class, and your drummer is even surrounded by bulletproof glass. Good job, man. You survived and live another day. I like, I like bulletproof glass. It's saved my life on a few occasions because I've been on a battlefield. But the truth is, we're all on a battlefield, aren't we? You can look at a story like mine that you're going to hear a little bit of, but the truth is that you are also probably fighting a battle at some point in your life. If, you, if you're above like the age of two days old, you have fought a battle. Maybe you're not fighting one now, but you will eventually. In fact, if any average person is probably going to fight dozens or hundreds of battles throughout their lifetime. So bad things do happen, right? I can tell what you're thinking. This guy is the worst motivational speaker ever. He didn't get the memo. He's supposed to be inspiring us. I'll just repeat the words of Jesus. Where was that? John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. Boy, they didn't put that on the preaching network, did they? Hmm. That doesn't make any money. Tell people bad things happen in life. We're well aware bad things happen. But in Ephesians 6, 11, it says, Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Today, what I want to do is I want to share with you how to stand firm in your faith when everything around you was blowing up. And I didn't read any of this information in a book. I didn't get what we call in the military the good idea fairy to give me ideas. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today is something I've learned through my own personal life experiences that have been uh, <laughs> really quite painful. And I've had to really push through and get through those things. And my whole point in sharing today that's right, baby. You hear it. You got someone praising in the back there. My whole point is to not talk about my story so much, but just give context to what I'm going to say. Because my whole goal here is to say, hey, here's a few things I've learned after going through some really bad stuff. I hope it applies to your life in some way. And if I can help you apply that to your life so you can win the battle you're facing, uh, my job's done. That's my goal here today. And I don't know what you've been through in your life. You and I, we may or may not have been through a lot of the same things. Now, I was injured by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan. I'm probably one of the only people you'll meet who that's happened to and is around talking about it. For a, long, a lot of times we think we're alone in our struggles. Well, I for a long time thought I was the only guy who survived something like that. Then I met my buddy Doug, who lives up in Michigan, he survived a suicide bombing blast. So I don't feel so alone now. There's one other guy in the world who knows, how, who knows how I feel. But some of you, you're on a mental battlefield. It might not be Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam or wherever, but every day you wake up and you have these thoughts going through your head, the feelings produced by your tragic or traumatic past life experiences, and they replay in your head. Sometimes that's the biggest enemy. It's just 
the thoughts of the past that you can't seem to get out of your head. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you lost your job. I have friends who have lost children at two and three years old. I can't imagine that battle. Maybe you're betrayed by a friend. That happens. But what do you do when everything in your life blows up, something important, a key area of your life just completely implodes or explodes, and you're left just asking the question of why? We all kind of ask that question. It's, it's kind of easy to believe in God when everything's good, but then when everything just goes out the window, a lot of us, we just kind of shake our fists at the sky and we ask why, and there's the whole, well, bad things happen, so I don't believe in God anymore. I understand that. Um, I just, I don't think it entirely negates the existence of God, but um, we might have had some bad theology if we were taught that. But, um, yeah, so that's what I want to talk to you about today, because I don't have a lot of points, but I have a few points. And there's three things I want to talk to you about today that I noticed while I was recovering in the hospital and after getting out of the military, I noticed that there were other people like me who had been through a lot of very tragic situations. And some of them continued on in life productively. Didn't seem to bother them much. They dealt with it. They moved forward. But then there were other people who went through some of the same or different situations, and they just never quite were able to get a footing in life. They weren't able to, to just get back up. And it always bothered me when somebody would ask me, like, Brian, how did you deal with this? Or how did you do that? And, and I didn't know for myself. Sometimes, like, you just kind of do what you know how to do. You didn't know you are doing it. Because I realized that anytime someone asks me something, they're, they're probably asking because they're dealing with something of their own. And that was one of the big keys to my recovery, was looking backwards at what I learned through my tough experiences and, think, and realizing, hey, <laughs> other people, these lessons I learned, it can apply to other people's lives and help them win their battles. Because that's what everyone's trying to do at the end of the day. Again, whether it's in your career, your relationship, or your health, whatever it is, we're all fighting a battle, we're all trying to get somewhere else, we're all trying to survive. And I want to talk about that today because from a very young age, uh, I had a very unstable state of mind as far as my upbringing. <clears throat> when I was 12 years old, my parents divorced. I'm from southern Michigan, Jackson, and so not too far from here. Uh, it wasn't your typical ideal growing up, you know, the leave it to beaver. It wasn't the Andy Griffith show, you know, there was Typically, a bottle of ketchup and a bottle of vodka in the fridge, and I didn't know whose it was. It's not water. Um, <laughs> you learn that once the hard way. Uh, but I grew up there, and at 12 years old, my parents went through this very, very violent divorce. And it's kind of funny looking back on it now. That's a weird thing to say after I make that statement. But looking back on it, my parents got divorced on a Friday, and on Monday morning, the Jackson County Courthouse had metal detectors at every entrance because of my parents' divorce. It, it got a little crazy in that, in that courtroom. And I was even speaking. I don't remember where I was, but I was not in Michigan. And I had a lady come up to me after a service, and she said, Fleming, Fleming, you're not from Jackson, Michigan, are you? I'm like, good guess. Who are you? She goes, I remember reading about your family in the newspaper like years ago, and I'm like, you remember that? Like, I was popular in school for like one day. Everyone's like, dude, what's going on? It's kind of the place I come from. And uh, I'll be honest, that, that experience numbed me emotionally from an early age. 
as you can imagine, as some of you may have been numbed from maybe an abuse or a trauma you suffered at a young age. But at the same time, that actually helped me because when I was 18 years old, I joined the Army. This was in 2003. Some of you think I'm a young pup, as one Vietnam vet called me after the first service. And some of you younger kids think I'm an old guy. So, but I joined the Army after 9-11, 2003. I was an infantry uh, team leader in an infantry platoon in Afghanistan. And uh, my wife and I, we got married three months before I went to Afghanistan. So didn't have a whole lot of time. We met on the internet like a year prior to that. And then we got married, and then I went to war three months later. I don't recommend that, but it worked out. Any other internet couples in here? Am I the only one? Oh, we got a few. Yeah, there we go. Well, my wife and I, I'm happy to tell you, are about to celebrate uh, 18 years of marriage here later this year. We've stuck through it. Yeah. <laughs> We've stuck through it, and um, I got me, got me a good one. Anybody in here from Texas? Any Texans? There we go. Yeehaw. <laughs> well, my wife is from Texas. She's not with me today, but she's from Texas. And if she was in here, you would know when she opens her mouth because she sounds like she's from Texas. But I'm just going to say, when it comes to your women, Texas, y'all make them good down there. Because I got me a good one, and she stuck with me. So I was in Afghanistan in 2006. I deployed. We arrived there in March. And about a month after arriving there, my vehicle ran over a double stack of anti-tank mines that were buried in the road in the Argandab River Valley. And it blew up our vehicle. It set it on fire. I was physically uninjured in this explosion. But we had a couple other guys who were injured. I was able to get out. I was able to help them get out. In fact, we have a couple of pictures here, if you can put one of the pictures up. That's the vehicle I was in on April 18th of 06. And, uh, yeah, things started blowing up all around us. And... Uh, that's how life is, and even though I wasn't physically harmed, to my knowledge at the time uh, I stayed on the mission, I did sustain a mild traumatic brain injury, which was actually amplified by some other things I'm going to tell you about, um, which ended up causing me to not be able to sleep at night, short-term memory loss, headaches every day, um, a high level of irritability, all kinds of things when your brain gets messed with. And that was from the, the blast of the explosion. Even though I wasn't bleeding anywhere, my brain had sustained a massive shockwave that went through my body. And so much of uh, my battle after coming home was actually not physical. I'm, I'm fully able. I, I'm a distance runner. I'm, you know, I, I, can, I have all my limbs, thankfully. But it was up here. And I'll tell you right now, I'd rather have you take a leg from me than to take my mind. I don't want anyone, anything taking my mind. I want my brain to be strong. And I've been able to be healed in a lot of ways from those experiences, and I'm grateful for that. But this one here, this was the, the first real wake-up call. This is uh, the back seat right there is where I was sitting when it happened. And the next picture, oh, all right, so that's the first vehicle. What's interesting about this is that we were on this mission for about a week, and I hadn't spoken with my mother for probably a week or two at that point by email and so we were stranded for two days out here uh, because we were one vehicle short until we could get back. And the day we got back, I had an email from my mother waiting for me that she wrote that day that we returned. And she basically said, hey, Brian, I uh, just want to let you know, a couple days ago, I had this really strange, intense feeling to pray for your protection. And I thought that was kind of cool because we just got blown up two days ago. I thought, man, that's, 
what wild timing. And I asked her, I said, what time did that happen? She said, well, I was, you know, she's up in upstate New York at the time, and she said, well, I was driving down the highway at this time and got this sudden, overwhelming emotion to pray. I, she's like, I was crying so hard that I had to pull over because I couldn't see through the windshield to drive. Overwhelming feeling. It turned out to be within just a few hours of this happening that my mother, on the other side of the world, had an idea something was going on. Had God told her something to pray which is why I love staying on my mother's good side. Because when that woman prays, God listens, you know what I mean? Some of you think I'm joking when I say God tells women everything. Like, I'm joking, but I'm not. Because a few months later, I was going to, all, we were told we were coming home in possibly July, but we might get extended for three months. And so my wife, who's preacher's kid, grandfather was an AG preacher, a whole family full of preachers. She starts praying that I will be home in the end of July specifically, and she is certain. You know, when you pray and you actually believe what you're praying for, that's going to happen. It's kind of rare sometimes, it seems like, but yeah, she actually was like, it's happening. And even her family, church people, pastors, they were all saying, well, Jamie, don't get your hopes up. It's the government. It's the military. It might not happen. She got mad at him. She basically said, what the heck am I praying for if I don't believe it's actually going to happen anyway? Why even pray? I'm like, now that's preaching. <laughs> Didn't have to go to Bible college or learn how to preach that way. So they backed off, and she was praying that I would be home in the end of July, specifically. The end of July, back in 2006. On July 24th, I was in Kandahar, Afghanistan, two miles from Kandahar Airfield, when a suicide bomber drove his minivan into my door of my vehicle and exploded. So it was about from me to this table right here, and I had bulletproof glass and armor plating on the, on the vehicle, but I was horribly injured in it because of the blast, the heat wave, everything. People ask how hot it was in Afghanistan, and they say, oh, it was so hot there. How hot does it get there? It was about 10,000 degrees the day I left. And uh, it took some skin off, too, which you'll see. But uh, when it comes to my wife, I, you know, you look at it. I was injured on July 24th. She's praying I'd be home in the end of July. I arrived at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, on the night of July 27th, the end of July. So I love it when my wife prays for me. I just ask her to be a little bit more specific when she does because that's what happened, like, this is exactly what happened. I'm not making any of this up. This is exactly how it took place. And here's a picture of that vehicle. That's uh, my door right there that was blasted open. I woke up and uh, laying on the ground right there on the side of Highway 1. And the uh, next picture you'll see is <clears throat> the suicide bomber's minivan, or what used to be. I'm uh, from the Detroit area, and I like to think that wasn't made up in Detroit. But not that it would have mattered with what he was carrying. And the next picture is a little bit more intense. That was my face right after they got me off the roadside. Full face, second degree burn. I had second, third degree burns, hands, face, and neck. Uh, the next one is uh, <laughs> the next picture they took of me. Because that first picture, they walked up, and I thought this guy was going to give me medicine because they just medevaced me and got me to the field hospital. And he walks up, and he, he's smiling, and he goes, hey, man, can I take your picture? He's like having a good day. 
I think he just had tacos for lunch, and he's just feeling good. And now my adrenaline's worn off. I'm burned second and third degree. I have no, no, nothing in me for, like, medicine. And I'm like, hey, man, can you, like, give me some medicine or something? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. No, we'll get that. Snaps my picture, walks away. Never saw the guy again. So I thought maybe he's a photographer, not a medic. But what he did do is he put that picture on a CD, and he put it in a box that got sent home with me. And then I got to Germany in the medevac process, and someone else wants to take my picture. Now, they wouldn't give me a mirror at that time, but everyone wants to take my picture. You can imagine what's going through my head. I'm like, do I look like Freddy Krueger or something? Like, what? They won't let me see, but they all want to take my picture. Well, I couldn't come home from Germany to the continental U.S. without a government-issued ID card because my ID card was in my shoulder pocket along with my iPod, the original iPod. Yeah, the original. I had a little dial on it. Kids nowadays don't even know the struggle. You have to turn your finger like that. Not even color. Yeah. And I had three $100 bills. I had every intention of using at Pizza Hut at Kandahar Airfield. But somebody took all of those things because they had to cut the top off me on, on the battlefield so they didn't, wouldn't pull it over the burns on my face and neck. And so I got a new ID card, and that's the picture they put on it. And for the next 14 months I was in the Army, every time you go through the gate, they go, hey, we need to see your ID card. Well, I didn't look like that, you know, after four or five months. And so I would show them the ID card, and they're looking at it, and they go, dear God, man, is that you? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and after the 153rd time doing that, you just want to joke with them just to, because it gets redundant. So I would just tell them things like I'm allergic to suicide bombers, and they're bad for my skin and things like that. Um, yeah, just, I mean, the job those guys have to do, and that heat's crazy, so I thought I'd entertain them. But the next picture you'll see is actually my left hand. Um, both my hands were blurred. I had to give, uh, had to have uh, reconstructive surgery, skin grafts. So my face was burned, both hands, back of my neck. And uh, the doctor, when I got to um, the field hospital, the, or San Antonio, he said, hey, we, we might have to skin graft your face. I'm like, all right. And he goes, we normally start taking skin from your uh, <clears throat> backside. That's where we start taking skin from. And I'm like, is it the fentanyl? Or did he just say that? Because you can't take this and put it on this. <laughs> like, that's like cruel and unusual punishment. I'm thinking, like, my wife will never kiss me again. All those names I was called as a kid will be true, and I can't live with that. And so all this is going on, you know. <laughs> so if you shake my hand today, they did graft my hands. But they didn't take it from there. <laughs> and they didn't graft my face either. Thank you. They actually took the skin on uh, my hands and from the front of my thighs, which is not a whole lot less awkward. Because every time I shake someone's hand, it's like I feel them touching my leg. <laughs> and my wife makes fun of me and says I have leg hair on my hands. But I guess if that's the worst thing, walking away from a suicide bombing, uh, that's not too bad. I'll tell you what was bad, though. I don't know if you've ever been at a place in life where you were in so much pain that you just prayed to die. Or maybe you're like on the verge of suicide. I've never been suicidal, but I have prayed to die. And one time, and it was the night I arrived at the medical center in San Antonio, they took me in a shower room, they sprayed me off, and about three or four nurses, and the head nurse looked at me and said, 
hey, we're going to do this as quickly as possible, so it'll be as painless as possible. And I had no idea what he's talking about. But if you know anyone who's ever been burned severely, they have to do a process called debridement. They have to get the dirty, charred, burned skin off, or you will die of infection. And they don't put you to sleep for it, because you can fall into a coma if they have you sedated too often, but you can also go into shock if they don't do it fast enough. So they did it as fast as they could. They all pulled out razor blades, and they had to, sh they had to shave and tear the burned, charred skin off and the dirty skin off my hands, face, and neck. And I did pray to die after what I would say was probably two or three minutes. They said it would be fast. It turned out to be about a half hour. But in that, in that moment, there was no sense of time. It was just, just kind of physical torture, but I knew they were doing it to save me. And if I fought them, I wanted to. But I knew we would just prolong the pain. And so I did pray to die. And uh, I, I can tell you, when you're in the middle of a battle in your life, everyone has a breaking point. But the problem is, you're in what's called the fog of war. You're so close to your battle, you can only see the, the, the thing right in front of you. But you can't see the big picture from the outside looking in. You don't know where this is going to lead that's good. Or you don't know how things are going to turn out in your favor. You don't know anything. All you can see is how bad it is, and you just want the pain to end. I don't know if anyone resonates with that statement. You just want the pain to end. But I know a lot of people who have been there, and I've been there myself. And I'm going to tell you, I thank God for unanswered prayers because when I was in the middle of this fog of war myself, I didn't know what I was asking for. I didn't know that the next 15, 20 years of my life, I would get to do this and help other people, talk people down off of suicide, talking to people who have been fighting their own battles, and now they're not going to give up because, well, I didn't and someone else didn't. So maybe they'll just live another day. Maybe they'll just keep going at least one more day. You know, people who are going through a really tough thing, they don't need 10 miles of solutions. They just need their next step. You need that much hope to keep going, and you just keep doing it every single day. So this was after all that took place. The next picture is uh, the, that same hand, but it's afterwards. Uh, a couple more pictures here. Next one is uh, my wife, Jamie. Again, she stuck with me. That's a good woman right there. The nurses stopped telling her about visiting hours after about the second day because she didn't listen to them anyway, and uh, they knew it was better for me. So the next picture here, they give you this award called a Purple Heart if you get blown up or shot or stabbed while in war. Nobody wants one, obviously. Uh, we call it the enemy marksmanship badge sometimes. Let that sink in. Uh, somebody reached out and touched you. My buddy Jay Redman, who was a Navy SEAL, he got shot like nine times with machine gun. He calls it the slow mover award because he didn't get out of the way in time. Not in either. But uh, you just got to make a lot of things sometimes. I don't know. I mean, not everybody's that way. I've learned my coping mechanism is sarcasm. It's my love language. In case Gary Chapman forgot that one. Um, good job, Gary. I like your book, but you missed sarcasm. But uh, <clears throat> I only show you that to show you the next picture. You get a Purple Heart license plate if you get a Purple Heart. So I put nice try on mine <laughs> because, yeah. Here's, here's the thing. Sometimes the enemy will come against you and it'll backfire. The suicide bomber was the only guy who died that day. So it's like, all right, left-handed salute, mission accomplished, kind of. So this is just my way of kicking it back. 
on my other on my other on my Jeep, I have another one. It it just says it says slow mover. So of course, you know, I'm I'm I've always been a fast driver, but now I'm slowing down and if somebody complains, I'm like, hey, it's on the tag. But <laughs> yeah, anyway, you can put that down. I, I tell you that um, only to set up the context for what I want to say now. This isn't about Brian's story today. I'm telling you this so you'll understand where I'm coming from with this. There are a few things that I realized were present in my life during this recovery that allowed me to move forward. For some of the time, I didn't actually know that these things were active or present in my life. They just were. And then that, would, that made it easier for me to overcome the battles I was facing. And one of the things that really made a difference was the fact that I discovered meaning in some of my suffering. I was uh, in uh, Kansas, and the guy who mentored me, Dave Reaver, he, many of you have probably heard of him, he, um, he, after he met me at the medical center, he came and spoke to me and like 30 other guys who had been shot up and blown up. And after that, he said, hey, I'm doing this thing in Kansas, patriotic rally I'm speaking at. Come with me. I'm like, all right, well, the military doesn't pay me that much. He goes, don't worry, it's free, I'll pay for it. Well, I grew up poor. You offer me something free, I'm taking it, just so you know. Don't think I'll, I'll be generous. No, I'll take it. And I took Dave up on his offer and changed my life because when I was there, I was sitting right where you are on the front row, just like that. And halfway through his talk, he, he points down at me and says, hey, Brian, come on up here. Tell him about yourself. I've been home for more like three or four months right now. And it's like, hey, get up and tell him about your experience. I got up on stage. He does one of these with a mic. Gives it to me. There were 3,000 people that had filled into this gymnasium. Yeah. Hey, worst experience of your life. Do tell. I said, uh, hey, I'm Brian. I got blown up. I guess I'm still here for a reason. Go for it. It wasn't much beyond that. It was probably the worst motivational speech you've ever heard. But when I got off stage, my life changed. Because when I got down off those stairs, I had a young lady come up to me who was probably my age at the time, 22, 23. And she said, hey, Brian, since I was a little girl, I was abused sexually, I was raped, I was molested. As a teenager, it went on. And into my adult life, my ex-boyfriend abused me too. I tried to kill myself two weeks ago but failed. And she left it there. And I'm standing there just like this saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, what do you say to somebody like that? Like, when they put that on you, you want to say something that'll, that'll work and help, but what do you say to that? And I just said, gosh, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. But then she topped it off with this. She said, but you know what, Brian? She said, if you can survive all that, referring to my Afghanistan experience, she said, I think I can get through this. So, the thing is, I didn't even have any advice for her. I didn't know what to say. But she saw somebody who was fighting a battle of their own and was continuing to move forward. That was that little inch of inspiration, or whatever you want to call it, that she needed to move forward in her life again. And I knew that that night when I went back to the hotel, that's one young lady who's not going to go home and drink a bottle of pills or put a pistol in her mouth and pull the trigger. Suddenly, there was a sense of meaning to everything I went through because it made all that worth it to me. I helped her not do that. 
that, that makes it kind of worth it in a way, to an extent, for me at least. And I never understood why that was the case. And so I was reading a book one time by a guy named Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning, and he was a Holocaust survivor, a Jewish psychiatrist from uh, Austria, and he said something about suffering. He said in one sentence what I didn't know how to say in 10,000 words was what I experienced. He said, when it comes to suffering, he said, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering. At the moment, it finds a meaning. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. Why did I feel so good and not so bad about everything I'd went through when I met that lady? It's because some sort of meaning or purpose got driven out of me and into the world that I live in. And I told Dave that night, I have to keep doing this. I don't know what happened. Whatever this is, I have to keep doing it. And he said, don't worry, I'll show you. And he did. So a lot of us, we get to a place where we're in a place of like despair. And the textbook definition of despair is basically this, a complete loss of hope. Zero hope, none. Things will not get better, none. That's a very dangerous place to be. But Viktor Frankl, he had his own definition of that, of despair. He said, despair is suffering without meaning. When we're just in pain, constantly suffering. And there's no, we're not suffering for a cause we believe in. We don't believe that anything good will come from it, that there is no redemption. A very nihilistic approach to life, a very hopeless approach. That's a really bad place you don't want to be. And that, I don't believe, is what God has in store for you either. So I discovered some meaning in my suffering. I had a mentor in my life, someone to help guide me. Do you know how many people go through hard things and they won't ask for help? Yeah, I'm the typical guy, military guy, you know, self-sufficient, individual. You just want to make it your own. Don't want to ask for help because apparently that's weakness. Uh, if, you're, if you're fighting a battle and you won't call in air support, that's just stupid. If you know what air support is, those are warplanes and war helicopters that will fly over top of your enemy and destroy them to help you not die. So if you're fighting a battle in your life, it's not weakness to call in the air support, to call in the help. It's smart. And people on a battlefield who don't call in air support when they need it, they get overrun and they die. And can you imagine a platoon commander not calling in air support when they're about to get overrun because he says, hey, we don't want the general to think we can't handle ourselves in battle. Yeah, he'd probably get taken out by his own guys if everyone else didn't completely die. That would make no sense, but we do it every day. I do it, and I have to remind myself to like let people help me if they see me in a place of need. Hebrews 10.25, it says, let us not forsake the meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is near. So think about a place in your life you may be struggling. Maybe it's in your health, maybe it's your mental health, maybe it's in, I don't know, your career. It could be any, any important area of your life. Maybe it's your marriage. If you're struggling somewhere, there are people out there who can guide you to a finish line where you will have a better outcome than if you just fight the battle alone. In case you don't know, the most dangerous place a soldier can be on a battlefield is alone. You have no one to help you. No reinforcements, nobody to help you, just alone. Alone means you get captured and killed first. So on the battlefield of our lives, don't be that person. Don't be called alone. And then the third thing 
beyond the meaning, the sense of meaning, the mentoring that I received was a mission. When I met that young lady, I decided I was going to make it my life mission to try to help other people win their battles based on my knowledge of fighting literal battles in literal war zones and maybe just help, help them win the battles they're facing in their life. Because when you, when you take on a mission that you're living for, it makes you responsible for something. And if you're somebody who's hopeless, one of the biggest things you need if you're in a place of complete despair and hopelessness, you need to be responsible for something. You need something that you need to be responsible and accountable to to make happen. Because people don't commit suicide when they have something to live for. People who have something to live for don't give up and quit because there's a greater price, whether it's the thing they want to accomplish or see happen or it's the other people that depend on them. Sometimes we'll do things for other people we will never do for ourselves. So that's why it's so important to have some sort of mission in your life. In fact, as I got out talking about this stuff, I've been preaching this message for years, a lot of people would say, Wow, that was really inspirational. I love those three points. They're really good. Yes, they're, they're foundational. They're spiritual. They're biblically sound. But then people would say, but Brian, how do I do that? Like, practically. Like, what, what can I do right now to, like, actually make a change in my life or to start making a change? And I really hadn't thought about it. I just kind of did what I did because that's how I think. But nobody can read my mind. I've been married for almost 18 years. I... I learned my wife can't read my mind and I can't read hers. It's, it's amazing. So what I did was I drew out a, a very simple battle plan. And growing up, I didn't have, really have anybody to show me how to live life like productively. I didn't have a framework for how to live life just because of how I grew up. But the military taught me how to plan and carry out missions in the military. And so I took those concepts and I just sort of applied them to my life and they started working. And I thought, well, hey, th this is stuff that I can help other people with. And so I thought, maybe I should start teaching that. And so I started teaching um, the military, doing resilience training, using that same framework because it's something they understand because they know how to, how to plan missions. It's, it's, it's what we do. Well, then I found that civilians who were never in the military were saying, wow, this, that makes it so clear and so easy to understand. I now know... I'm not alone in this. I know the real enemy I'm facing and who can help me. By the way, the real enemy some of you are facing, you're not facing. What I mean by that is some of you are fighting in your life a false enemy. Here's what I mean. Those roadside bombs in Afghanistan, they were not my enemy. The people burying those bombs at four in the morning in the roads, those people were our enemy. So we could dig up all the bombs on the road we wanted, but if we didn't get to the source and deal with it, we wouldn't be able to get rid of the enemy that was destroying, trying to destroy our lives. So think about your life. If you're facing a problem and you keep thinking you're addressing and facing the enemy, trying to get rid of it, and it keeps coming back, you might not be actually addressing the real enemy, the root cause of the issue or the battle you're facing. And so I decided I need to put this together for people. So they can just like, boom, 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 apply it. There's like eight or nine boxes on a paper. They can apply it to their life. They can get clarity, see an outline of their battlefield, and know how to get through it successfully. And so I created an online course, and this is not a sales pitch of any kind. I'm not hard selling you anything. I don't even have my book table here today. 
But I found that it's good if you get inspired today. But unless you know how to implement things, it won't change your life. So I have a one-minute video I want to share with you really quick. I'm going to tell you a couple more things, and I'm going to wrap up. So if we can play the video, thank you. What is the literal obstacle standing in your way? Sometimes the worst thing in some people's life is everything staying exactly the same. This program is a proven mental health framework for winning the unexpected battles that will eventually come into your life. I'm a combat wounded Afghanistan war veteran, a Purple Heart recipient, and I'm an author, an international speaker, and a resilience trainer for the US military. I was severely wounded by a suicide bomber. I spent 14 months enduring painful burn treatments and having to deal with the effects of complex PTSD. After leaving the military, I used this same battle plan methodology that the military taught me, and I'm about to teach you to rebuild my entire life again from the ground up. And my life mission is to help people just like you win the battles they're facing every single day. I'm gonna show you exactly how to very simply create a real military battle plan for your life so you can overcome any change you're going through and win the battle you're facing. When you understand how a battlefield works, you'll understand how to make your life work. So let's get started. So some of you, like I said, are in the fog of war. You're too close to your own battle. You're trying to figure your way through, and you may feel confused or lost with the thing you're dealing with. How do I get past this? If you go to that website, overcomechange.com, or just scan the QR code on your phone, you can learn more about that. But that is how I literally put my life back together. Yeah, God was with me the whole time, but God did his part, but I had to do my part. And when I started doing this, I thought, okay, it, it, it helps me, it works for me, but I need to know it works for other people. And as I would meet people, I would walk them through it and help them create a battle plan. One lady was in a very toxic, extremely abusive relationship for 25 years. We sat down with her and created a battle plan Two weeks, she was out of that relationship. 25 years stuck, toxic, manipulation, yeah. Do you know who that woman was? That was my mother. That was the best battle plan I've ever written. Because she's free now, she's healthy, she's happy. That many years of abuse and that woman is happily single. And I love seeing her so free. There was a, another person, a Marine, who uh, I met when I was speaking for an insurance company in California. And he was in the Marine Corps for uh, 23 years. And one day after retiring, as the alpha male he was, the leader, do everything, big guy, he woke up with a condition where he can no longer walk. He's paralyzed from the waist down. Completely in his head. Didn't know what to do. Didn't leave the house for about a year. Him and his wife loved to travel. But he found that the enemy he was facing wasn't the paralysis. It was, I don't want to ask anyone for help, and I don't want anyone looking down on me, figuratively or literally, because he's in a wheelchair. Once we were able to put that battle plan on there, him and his wife booked like four or five vacations in like a six-month period. He called me like a month later, and he's like, dude, that battle plan, like it just made sense. And I'm like, I know, it just makes sense. The guy got a bunch of his life back. And he went to a big old event of guys he deployed with that he was not going to go to because he was embarrassed. He went to that event out at Camp Pendleton. This helped that guy get his life back. So, look, if you're looking for something that can help you get clarity on your battlefield, 
Take your next step forward and see it for what it is and get past things. Go, just go check that out. And I'm going to end right now because my time's up. But I want to remind you that in the Bible, in John chapter 9, there is a, a story of a guy who was born blind. And when Jesus and the disciples were walking through the gates of this city, the disciples did what a lot of us do. They looked at Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, why was this guy born blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? You know, they're trying to place blame, point the finger. Yeah, we do that as people. But in pure Jesus style, like he does in the Bible, he comes out of left field with an answer they did not expect. He said it wasn't because of his parents' sin or his sin. He said these things have happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. These things have happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. And I don't know how to tell you any different. This is my life story. I trusted God. I took, I took the steps. And I have a better life now than I did even before I was injured. God has redeemed my story. And he can redeem your story too. The guy who was born blind, he just kind of trusted and said, hey, I believe you can make this better. And that's what happened. So I want to encourage you today. Believe and know that what has happened to you, God can use for good and God can heal. He's done it in my life. He's done it in many others. And I believe and I know he can do it in yours. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to the Grace Assembly of God podcast so you're up to date on all sermons. Also, if you want more Grace content, make sure you subscribe to the Deeper Grace podcast, where Pastor Wayne will dive deeper into his most recent message. Have a great week, and God bless.